special bulletin. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. In five. Check for sound. Four. It's showtime. Three. Let's two, go. One. Launch. You're listening to the Pro Audio Suite, a program for audio and voiceover professionals. On the panel, from L.A., George Whittam, Tech to the VO Stars. From Sydney, Darren Robbo-Robertson, audio engineer and producer at Voodoo Sound. From Chicago, Robert Marshall. From Someone Audio Post and co-founder of Source Elements. And finally, me, Andrew Peters, voiceover talent and founder of Real Time Casting. And on today's show, our guest from London, voiceover talent and owner of CKUK, Christopher Kent. And here we are with a brand new podcast. This is called the Pro Audio Suite. And the lineup has changed, but I'm still here. But lots of things have been happening uh, since we had our last show, which was just before Christmas. Uh, one particular thing was NAM in Los Angeles. And I've got a funny feeling, George, you were there. Oh, yes, I was. I was over there with my show VOBS and uh, VoiceOver Body Shop. And we were walking around for a couple of days. Two days, we scoured the halls looking for things. Um, and um, game changers is what we like to look for. And, you know, it takes a long time and a little bit of luck to find things that truly jump out as game changers, I have to admit. We were kind of focused on microphones and audio interfaces because that's the stuff that's most relevant to, to most voice actors. And, you know, it was really cool to see uh, Neumann re-release the U67. I saw that. That was pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to rely on your old vintage 67s that rotate in and out of the tech shop. I have one client that uses them and he does rotate them in and out of service regularly. I've paid people to take U87s and sort of do their own take on a 67, actually, like busted up U87 and gut it and put in that EF86 uh, tube. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought what was interesting was that we asked the fellow, you know, why why tube? What is it about the tube? And, and the guy from Neumann specifically, and this is something that I believe anyway, is that the tube itself in the mic is very, very little to do with the actual sound tonal characteristic. It's actually more the transformer. And uh, so that, I thought that was fascinating. But that mic does have a certain sound that's hard to replicate. Yeah, there's a Peluso mm-hmm. P67 made here in the sure. States that's pretty darn good, actually. We, we put one up against the U67 and my client that had the flaky 67s was happy. I don't know if he's ready to drop 7,000 US dollars for (laughs) a U67, but um, I I think they base that price on the resale value of a used 67. I think that's how they came (laughs) up with that price because they they do go for about that. I saw one for sale in Australia in Australian dollars, 21,000. Whoa. Yeah. For a used U67, 21 sure. grand. They're, they're only going up. I was going to say 6,000 sounds like a price from almost 10 years ago on a 67. There you um, go. They're worth more than I even I thought. Uh, yeah. so, but I, but there's out. a lot of copies. There's a lot of copies of that. I've got a uh, Sound Deluxe U99, which again uses that EF80, or I think it's EF86 tube. Sounds and there's, um, yeah. and Blue, I believe, made one. And there's the, there, there's a lot of takes on it, you know, trying to recreate it, as well as the U87. So it's interesting. Um, yeah. It's really welcome. Well, at this least. one is supposed to be a part-for-part replication of the original. You can take any piece, swap it out with an old mic, and it's a direct replacement. That's what they I say. wonder yeah. if they're using the uh, new old stock EF86 tubes well, or valves. Yeah. I, I really wonder, because another copy that I had made actually was by an Australian named uh, Bees Knees. And so he he did a copy for me and he put an EF86 in there. And I used it for a couple of years, but the build itself was a little bit shoddy, um, a little yeah. bit troublesome. And so he took it back and he kind of reinforced it and just sort of took it on himself. And he kind of switched the tube out with a tube that's more accessible. And it's the same tube, actually, I believe, that Peluso uses for his uh, P67. And I got to say, it's still great. And I I don't have enough of these to start comparing and telling that it's exactly the same, but that might kind of lend towards the theory that it's more in the transformer than it is in the uh, the tube itself. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because my the mic I'm on now has the U uh, the EF eighty six valve. Which mi- which mic is inside. that? Which mic? That's which mic the uh, Microtech Cafel M ninety two point one S. So it's the M seven ah. capsule, the EF eighty six tube. 
Okay, so that's a bottle mic. It's not a, not a bottle. It's um, it's just a. It looks kind of like the old uh, UM fifty seven, which is was its granddad, I suppose. Yes. Well, so Microtech and Neumann split, and they both took the same designs. And but I believe that they split before because that was you know with the war. The U sixty seven. I don't know. Was it nineteen sixty seven? I'm not too sure. No, sixty five, um, and that was the that was it, the weird thing about it. They because they had the forty seven, which they developed right. in forty seven. And then they developed the 67 and 65, and they were going to call it the uh, U65. And they went, no, well, why don't you call it the U67? Because you had the 47. Wow, this, is, this could become the history of microphone yeah. show very fast. <laughs> yeah. Man, you, guys are, you guys are a wealth well, this of knowledge. Is, it's awesome. Well, this is like one of the, like the I, mean, I mean, there's other, so, some other funny stuff going over to Motown. When the 87 came out, Motown dumped, or at least I've heard, or I read an article, they, they dumped all their tube mics, their... And they went with the 87, which was basically a transistorized 67. And, yep. and they were fine with it for a while, although, you know, by the 90s, they were like, what did we do? We sold mm-hmm. off. And of our- course, the 87 <laughs> came out in what, 70, was it 1971 or 71? something? Yeah, because I've got some 87s and they're not, they're not AIs, they're just the original 87s that are a little bit noisier. And so, yeah. Made in well, West Germany. Funny thing, the original 87 could run off a battery. Who knew? Ooh. Wow. Well, I'll tell you, in a totally different vein from Nam, because, you know, there was a lot to see. And this is at the other end of the spectrum. The company Art, they're kind of known for, you know, pretty cheap tube stuff, right? Like little tube mic preamps, little tube this and tube that. Um, they came out with a pair of studio monitors that were kind of fascinating. And you know, I will not pass judgment whatsoever until I can somehow get a pair to demo. But they're called the RM5. And what made them cool is they're, they're not very thick. So they can stand next to a flat screen monitor. I think they're only about three or four inches deep. And uh, they fit up flat against the wall. They, they take up very little space. But what makes them interesting is they have on either side a very large, you know, elliptically or oblong shaped passive radiator. So each side of the speaker is a huge passive radiator. It's kind of hard to picture it because the speaker is more or less rectangular from the front, but it has a curved top and bottom. So from the side view... It's sort of an elongated rectangle with rounded ends, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And inside that are the radiators. So it's supposed to be bound to about 35 hertz for something that's very small, uh, that fits on a, uh, you know, fits on either side of a laptop screen or a, a desktop display. And those look pretty darn cool, I have to say. Very well thought out, interesting industrial design. Um, so hoping to, to get my hands on those to demo one of these days. Well, they might like to send us four pairs. <laughs> Just to have a if you're listening, Art, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, right. they actually yeah, come up right. with a lot of kind of good stuff. Like I, I know that their valve or their tube mic preamp, um, I was reading an SOS article and they shot out blind with Neve copies and a whole range of mic preamps, everything from, you know, two and a half thousand dollar single channel mic preamps down to a Mackie 1202. And that single channel valve preamp that they had scored really high and it's extremely affordable, but it's got all these really great features at, you know, impedance yep. matching and all kinds of stuff. And, yeah. and they have other interesting boxes like little headphone USB, you know, yeah. pretty small, nifty, small boxes. They, they seem like a good company actually. I like that they make a lot of problem solvers. They make interesting yes. little gadgets. Then they have a little mixer now called the USB mix Four that, if you just yep. have a very basic studio, but you want that ability to do loop back, so you want to be able to take a playback and loop it back to Skype or something like that, their little USB Mix 4 has that ability. It has the loop back function. You just flick a switch. So for an $80 mixer, if it has a decent enough preamp, which might be for portable use, it could be a cool little gadget. So can't know, can't call them game changers, but you know these are things that stood out that looked really in- interesting to me during our two days at the show. Well, the one I did see that I thought could be a game changer was the um, the Flock Digital, or it's not digital, Analog Stroke Digital Patch Bay. Did you check that out? No. I saw you sent me a picture of it, but I missed, totally missed that at the show. Yeah, that sounds... That doesn't mean anything. This show is huge, by the way. Yeah. It, it has a whole new hall that didn't even exist until this year that's the size of two AES shows. And then you have the rest of the giant hall, which had even more pro. So it was a lot to see. But uh, that sounds really fascinating. What What do you think the use case for you might be for something like that? Uh, well, not for, shouldn't be for anyone like me, but you know what I'm like. I can't help myself. But um, 
the idea is that instead of having, you know, patching, 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 you can actually do it on the screen. So even though it's analog, it, it actually has like a USB out, like I guess USB out. Um, so you just, you can just pick, like everything's patched in. So you go, I'll have that microphone with uh, that and you just drag and drop. And then you set up it's, the chain it's, of, it's what, kind of how you want. It's kind of like the CM Automation had a 16 or 32 channel um, analog patching system. But you got you to gotta make sure with those systems that they're like a lot of the times, especially if it has the capability to send one input to multiple outputs, you know, there's some gain going on. There's some, you know, some chips in there and it's not completely entirely a thousand percent passive possibly. Mm. Right. You mean talking about a, it's almost like a DA or distribution amplifier. Exactly. Like that's the way, that's the way a lot of like the facility routers, you know, that handle the post house I worked at had a huge router, had an AES layer and serial digital layer for video, analog video, analog audio. And it's a great feature. You're able to kind of send things multiple places at the same time, but it's definitely going through electronics. Not a purest signal path, more than likely, is what you're saying. Possibly, right. I don't know the product, but it depends on... And if not, it's like a servo switching or somehow mechanically making those switches. Not sure. It's cool. I mean, I'm looking at a video of it now, and I think what makes it unique, like you said, it is the user interface. The user interface of it is very unique in that it's click and drag. So it doesn't make your head explode if you're not not an engineer that understands signal path. It's all laid out on the screen. And it also does things for you, like if you forget that it's 48, phantom power. It will actually tell you and won't allow you to uh, drop in, say, for instance, um, you know, uh, a tube mic. If um, if you've got P48 selected, it won't select it for you. So you don't blow oh. things up. So it has preamps in it? Yeah. Does it have preamps too? No, everything uh, everything that's in there goes through the, that patch bay. Oh, I see. So it the whole idea is that it, it's not a preamp, but any mic that requires a phantom power can be, it, can, it will supply the phantom power for that particular mic. Yeah, it will tell you if the phantom power is on. Or you know, it needs so to be is it off. sensing the phantom power on the line? Is that what it's doing? Yeah, yeah. I see. That's what I gather. Oh, yeah, fascinating. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. Um, I have that. I have that video up. I'm going to watch that later. Yeah, it's very interesting. I'm sitting here looking at my little analog patch bay, thinking you're going nowhere, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah, man! I just I put in a TT patch bay with these little tiny Molex. I don't know which uh, what bays you have. Do you have oh, quarter yeah. inch or TT? Yeah, TT. Yeah, and so what's on the back of your TT? Is it 25 pin or you solder to it or what's what's on the back? Yeah, soldered in place. Yeah. So I, I went through the same thing and, and um, there's, I mean, there's some really sweet TT patch bays that you can actually use little jumpers and change each module to be half normal, fully normal, not normal. And then on the back of it, they use these little Molex, you know, Elko, right? And everyone thinks of Elko as being this huge block with, I forget how many connect, you know, points on it, yeah. but Elko mm-hmm. also made a little three pin system and you can pull this TT patch bay out and redo the whole back of it, just like your patching oh, wow. cable. So it's almost like the, wow. the workflow of those really junky quarter inch to quarter inch patch bays with the solidness and the density of a TT bay. It's great. Wow. Nice. Nice. I never got to use quality stuff like that. I was using the crappy quarter inch in and out patch bays, which (laughs) in a remote recording truck that I built using those was a nightmare because chances are along the way, one or two of them would dislodge. Totally. And, and then you're like, connection. what's going on? And you're like, or, or or every time you want to work on it, like you fix one thing and you pull out four other connectors and you, yes, yeah, those things drive yes. me crazy. I do get the, I, I do understand now having done it with the wrong kind of patch bay, why they're designed that way. Something else that uh, came out over the last um, month uh, was Rode Microphones uh, bought a company called Fuzz Measure. Uh, I sent the link to you, George, to have a look yes. at. Maybe so you it's could like explain. A, it's like a cop detector. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> no, it just tells you how big they are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I, um, I've taken a good look at Fuzz Measure. I haven't demoed it yet. Um, I have to dust off my Omni mic. What what this is is a software for measuring a room acoustically, and it's for helping measure the response of the room and impulse response of the room, how, how reverberant it is, how echoey it is, how resonant it is. Does um, it come up with inverse filters to sort of flatten out the room? Is it like a monitoring system or is it just a um, measurement and that's it? From what I can tell, it's just a measurement tool at this point. It'd be awesome though, if it did have the ability to output a curve, uh, you know, that you could load into your DAW's 31 band and then it would Put just Put an IIR curve, yeah, an infinite impulse yeah. response and uh, kind of... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, don't know. 
Don't know. I, this is something that's really new to me. I mean, I was just introduced to it by Andrew recently. I, I have a Omni mic, but I do have one of those measurement style Omni directional yeah. mics. It's kind of like a pencil. Yeah, I yeah, got a TK30s. And... Mine's made by Behringer. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I, but, uh, I do actually have the B&Ks. Those are, those are crazy that don't run off Phantom. They run off of 192 geez. volts. Those things will pick up a mouse farting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'll give it a shot. Hopefully soon in a studio that's getting finished up right now with very unusually shaped rooms, mainly because we're taking a two-car garage and slicing it into three rooms, all right. triangular in size, triangular and basically, basically triangular floor plans or something somewhat triangular. So, so what you're like throwing a wall, a wall down the diagonal and then another half wall down one of the other diagonals? Sort of. Yeah. The yeah. floor plane, the floor plan is nuts. So from an acoustical standpoint, it's going to be complete chaos yeah. Um, as to what we can do with these rooms. So it's going to be a good test for tools like this. I think at the end of the day, if we can get it to sound good for in one spot for the monitoring or for listening, and in the other room, have it sound one good in one spot yeah. for the microphone, we'll be in good shape. That'll you know? be a win. Absolutely. Yeah, that'll for, be a win. For any small room, that's what you often end up with. And even most every room, there's always, it changes where you are and you, you tune yeah. it for a spot. You can't tune the whole room. No, especially when the room, not when there's no symmetry to the room at all. Right. These, none of the rooms have anything symmetrical. So it's going to be very challenging. So it could be a good test for a tool like this. So I'm looking forward to giving uh, this this test, this fuzz measure. You're going to have to report back. So does Rode uh, give you the yeah. mic or or is it just the software tool? My understanding I'm not sure. is yeah. they're working on the mic. This is just, you're buying their software, which they in turn bought from somebody else. Um, they've relay, I think they've rebranded it. But the eventuality is they will then sell it with a package with a calibrated mic. How is it different than like other you know, measurement systems and that, I don't, I don't know. know if it's, I don't know. I don't know. It differentiates it from others having not used a lot of others. I really made very little use of these tools over the years because my job of doing a voiceover studio is extremely simplistic compared to doing a music studio. So yeah. I just get it sounding really good in like one good spot where the mic goes and they're happy. I can do that by ear. Um, but I haven't used the competing tools, but, uh, it says road test microphones, interfaces, software, and kits are in development and will be released later in 2018. So it's right now it's just software. It's just an idea. I'm sure they're going to build other features on it, you know, inverse EQs and things like that. Sure. To- so what's the ideal shape of a, of a, of a room to record in? <laughs> a sphere. I, I only laugh because <laughs> that the, that's like saying, what's the best mic for voiceover? Is there one? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. Probably even harder, actually. Um, the ideal room is infinitely large and has no uh, no hard surfaces anywhere. A field with no birds and no wind and <laughs> nothing. <laughs> yes. So you're saying an ideal room is a room with no with no acoustical property of any kind at all. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, because then because then your voice goes out and never bounces back, and then you've solved all the acoustic problems because there is no acoustics. You just have right. you and your mic. Right, That's an right. anechoic chamber. It is. That's um, what it's it what is. an anechoic chamber tries to be. Yeah. Right. It approximates <laughs> very closely. Right. I wouldn't want to be in one of those working. Quite I could frankly. sidebar. <laughs> no. I could sidebar all day or tangent all day, but I heard that the test facilities that Apple developed to build their new HomePod speaker is mind-boggling. They built rooms in the in the underground at the new facility. Many rooms whose job it was, was specifically to design this one product. Multiple anechoic wow. chambers, multiple listening spaces, just to develop that one speaker. I am not in the Apple ecosystem. And that's the problem with these tools, these things. It only speaks Apple stuff. Doesn't work with any Android phones, doesn't work with Spotify. It's dead yeah. to me. But acoustically, as a speaker, what it's accomplished is absolutely mind-boggling, what this speaker can do. It's really amazing. Check it out online. Yeah, I have to check it out. I've been wanting to also check out the uh, anechoic chamber over here at Shore because Shore's over here in Chicago, and it'd be Field trip. I've never been in one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're listening, Shore, invite me. Yeah, anechoic chambers can send you completely mad very quickly. Yeah, like thirty or forty minutes. Yeah, everyone finds out that their ears ring. Their ears ring, and they don't even know it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You hear ringing. You hear your. It, it actually gets to the point where you hear, you hear your the blood, blood traveling through your body. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I read that body. somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That'd be weird, wouldn't it? And that's then, and then if freaky. you like suspend somebody in water that's the right temperature, all of a sudden you have like no sensory input and you flip out. 
Right. I think a cat in an anechoic chamber will go, will die really quickly. Really? Because they're so sensory. A bat, that would just... It would be hilarious dead. to see a bat yeah, fly into the walls weird, or something. Yeah, yeah we go, like sending out signals going, well, I'm in a place that doesn't yeah. exist. What the hell's going on? Yeah. No animals were harmed in the creation of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and we cat, all love bats. cats. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, Can't really put a dolphin in a, in a court chamber. <laughs> okay, stop it. Yeah. In, the, in the perfect temperature water. How about a horse? With a blindfold. Pony. Guinea pig. Tortoise. This is Harlan Hogan on the Pro Audio Suite, or as we say in South America, this is Harlan Hogan on the Pro Audio Suite. All right, so uh, we've <laughs> worked out the anechoic chamber. Uh, Robert, <laughs> we're going to have a question for you after this interview. This is part one of an interview uh, Robo and I did earlier in the week, one we prepared earlier, with Christopher Kent, who you may know as the voice of well, many British products in America. And in the UK, of course, he's very well known. He also has a studio in Ealing, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, Christopher Kent. It's zero degrees here at the moment. Oh, really? It's 29 degrees Celsius here and sunny. Yeah. How about you, Robo? How's how's the temperature up there in Sydney? I think it's about 38 degrees, something like that. Yeah. 38, yeah. How's the pool? Is the pool nice? The pool's fantastic. (sighs) Excellent. Pools, beaches. It's uh, well, we dream about these things. Yeah. Even 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 in the summer, we don't really get that. But uh, no. Anyway, you're enjoying it. Well, I must admit, though, the last summer I had in England, I spent some time in the West Country, and it was perfect. Seven days, 27 degrees. Yes, it, it does happen from time to time, yeah. That's why we, we, we all sort of walk around with our mouths open in disbelief. <laughs> That's right. There was a bit of that going on. Yes. <laughs> well, what happens is um, you, get, you get one day of that and everybody, you know, all the builders take their shirts off and uh, everyone walks around saying, oh, isn't it gorgeous? And on the second day, <clears throat> all the builders are, are sunburned and they're red as lobsters. <laughs> and everyone's going, it's too hot, it's too hot, it's not good for the gardens. And, uh, you know, so that, that's the way we carry mm. on. Yeah. I love that when uh, everyone takes their shirt off down in the serpentine yeah. and uh, <laughs> they have that sort of, like, vest kind of pattern, the white <clears throat> where the vest has been, and they've actually got a bit of a tan going. So it looks like they're still dressed, but they're not. It's very yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. with with puce red arms. <laughs> it's, it's not. It's not really a good look, is it? No, know. it's not. Not a good look yeah. at all. No, I'm going to pull this show back yeah. into line here because um, I'm feeling a bit like the thorn between two roses, the Aussie twang with two surreal voiceovers, two, two with English accents around me. I'm I'm sort of feeling a bit left out. Yes. Yeah, so well, we are, are we both the red rose, or are we a red and a white rose? Mm, well, there you go. Well, you can decide that. I'm from Yorkshire. <laughs> yeah, you're from Yorkshire, you're white rose. So, so yeah, I'm from yeah. down south, so I'd be a red rose, wouldn't I? Well, actually, no, because Yorkshire and Lancashire, wasn't it? The red and the white. Yeah, it was traditionally yeah, Lancashire, right. yeah. yeah. So, well, as, my, uh, as my grandmother used to say, the only good thing to come out of Lancashire were road to Yorkshire. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, exactly. Yeah. Now, you, uh, for anyone that doesn't know, because a lot of our audience is not in the UK, it's in America and uh, Australia... Uh, you are a, a big player in the voiceover community, but there's a twist in, in your um, your career, which we'll get to soon, but it's got to do with your studio. But the first question I wanted Ooh. to get underway was, how did you and when did you get into voiceover? Uh, I was an actor. I am an actor. Um, and I, like a lot of actors, um, in between uh, work or even while I was doing other things, used to get asked to do uh, voiceovers and... Um, Enjoyed it, but I don't think I ever sort of um, took it all that seriously. But at, at that time, this is pre-remote working, pre-ISDN and so on, you had to go to a studio. Except the other thing I discovered was that um, there was a sort of community of uh, actors and uh, other voice people who travelled on a circuit to different radio stations. So in the days before ISDN radio stations in the UK, because remember it's geographically a small country, um, they made all their radio commercials every week on Tuesdays and Thursdays, usually. And so they would book... Uh, voice talent through the year so on the Tuesdays and Thursdays on a sort of rotor basis so what you had to do was try and um, uh, around about sort of October November get onto radio station uh, production managers commercial production managers and try and get yourself some bookings and once you'd got yourself a few bookings you'd kind of work around it so that for instance say I was booked to go to um, Radio Air in Leeds and uh, Radio Hallam in Sheffield which are sort of 50 miles apart 
then on on that day, I would then ring up uh, some guys in Birmingham, which is on the way, and some guys in Nottingham, and say, "I'm just going to be passing at this time," and they'd say, "Well, come in and do a couple of scripts." And so that that's the way it worked. We all clocked up, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles a year doing these sort of journeys, and sometimes it worked out well, and sometimes you get to the day and they go, "Well, I haven't really got anything for you." But um, within a six-month period, really, when ISDN was first introduced, they started saying, "Are you getting ISDN?" and uh, those of us who weren't of a technical mind at the time would say, what, what do you mean? And then within six months, they'd be saying, well, unless you have an ISCM, we can't work with you because that's what we're going to do. And so um, it, for me, it was a combination of that and the fact that I was working in the West End at the time doing a show and uh, it was all going terribly well. And um, we bought a house in, in West London, which is a very expensive place to live, <laughs> sort of naively, <laughs> and um, finished the show in the West End. And uh, my agent said, well, we sit tight and there were you know, things coming in from the RSC and the National and so on. And uh, she's saying, no, no, they're, they're, not, they're, not, they're not good enough. And I didn't work for nine months with this huge mortgage in West London, Ouch. at which point I thought I'd better take this uh, voiceover business a bit more seriously. And that was when I... Um, I started uh, really kind of getting involved and I installed a, one of the first home studios that there were over here. I mean, initially there were only sort of 20 or 30 of us doing it um, and I knew absolutely nothing, but I got an ISDN line and uh, and that's that's really, really how it kicked off. Um, but also getting with a really good agent in London. Um, at the time, there were only a few of them and um, there were, there were a, a small community of um, very, very good voice actors um, who even sort of pre-mobile phones, they used to, um, they actually owned a flat in Soho in, I mean, anyone who's worked in the studio scene in London knows that um, it's all concentrated in an area not much bigger than a, a parking lot in LA, really. You know, there's yeah. just this complete concentration of small, high-end studios and advertising agencies. And so these guys actually bought a, a flat, a, an apartment in the middle of Soho and just used to sit there um, with their pages at the time. And, um, you know, they'd get something saying, you know, dog food at Silk Sound at two o'clock and off they'd go and do, do that. And then they'd trot off somewhere else and they were making... A great deal of money, so it was an attractive thing to try and work towards right at the time. Yeah, so what, what year are we talking about? So that would be the early 90s, so I think ISDN, I set my first studio up in 95 or 6, I think. Um, so that was just the kind of cusp, I mean the, the 80s was, there were a small number of people who made huge amounts of money in voiceover here then because at the time there were only four or latterly five TV channels. It seems incredible now, doesn't yeah, it? Does, and, yeah. Um, and so if you got a campaign, um, it was playing to you know, 15, 20 million in our market is is big um and you know your residuals your repeat fees on meant that people were really buying you know buying houses and racehorses and all sorts of stuff off the back of it so there were a small number of people doing a great amount of work but you know in this in the following 20 or 30 years of course um there's been a sort of an explosion of the number of outlets both in terms of channel tv channels themselves but also um you know online marketing and everything else so the the advertising dollar or pound is uh, is spread much more thinly yeah I'm, I'm interested to hear did you did did you hear, i mean you were obviously welcomed into the voiceover community but did you hit any resistance the opposite way with your acting career because on my my and the reason i ask is my ex-wife uh trained as an actor uh, mm. And then fell in. When I say fell into voiceovers, fell into voiceovers in a big way. She was for a long time. She was probably one of the the busiest sort of female voiceover actors in Sydney. And at, probably yeah. at the peak of her career, she bumped into one of uh, just as we started dating. Actually, she dump, bumped into one of her old teachers from from acting school, who sort of went, "Oh, darling, how are you?" Blah blah blah. By the way, what are you doing? And Jenny sort of said, "Well, you know, I'm doing voiceovers, blah blah blah." And she went, "Hand over the head, you know." The big actress sort of, "Oh my God, you know, you're doing voiceovers. Don't worry, darling. Real work will come along soon." You know, and all that sort of stuff. I was like, "Okay, yeah, whatever." Yeah, it's in it's interesting, isn't it? And I definitely less so now, but then certainly going back to the period I'm talking about, the the early '90s, it was. I think, truthfully, that's something a lot of actors wanted to do, but they pretended that they didn't because they knew it was difficult to get into. And so um, there was a sort of... And certainly well-known actors um, wouldn't admit to doing it, although a lot of them did do it. Um, it was almost like a sort of... A, yeah, a little bit of a sort of dirty secret. And I think there are always... And there probably still is slightly a, a sort of slight resistance or mistrust of people who specialise in it. And, I mean, for, for me, 
I always intended to carry on as an actor, but in fact, um, at the time, um, the nature of it, it, it went on so quickly once ISDN was in the house and so on, it became like opening a shop in the morning, really. You know, there were very few of us, and uh, at the time, everything came through on faxes, you know, and it was, it was almost the biggest problem was buying enough fax paper. It just, you know, it exploded very, very quickly. Um, and so, you know, 20-something years later, I'm just beginning to get back on stage and do stuff because it's it sort of, you know, while I was bringing up a family and so on, it, it, it served me very well. But um, with actors, I mean, yeah, when I talk to young actors, now um i sometimes go asked to go to you know talk to drama students and so on and the thing you have to say is um it's it is a serious business it's not a there are no free lunches in it nobody's waiting for you to walk through the door there's a lot of hugely able and hugely qualified people doing it so you have to take it seriously and the, the thing i do with them is i give them i think the worst piece of advertising copy i can lay my hands on at any given time which as most of us know isn't, isn't that hard um so, uh, you know, a really terrible sort of 30-second carpet warehouse ad or, you know, second-hand car deal or something like that. Yeah. And I ask them to read it, and most of them find it very difficult to do it seriously with conviction. They tend to want to sort of send it up. And then I give them a Shakespeare sonnet and say, read that. And they, of course, they're training as actors. They like to think they can do that. And then I say, but they're very similar, aren't they? Because... Um, in both cases, you've got a premise and an antithesis, and that's worked through, and then you have a closing couplet which sums up what's being said. And you have to apply the same disciplines to it. You have to have as much conviction about the, the terrible 30-second advert as you do about the wonderful Shakespeare sonnet. And that's what people are buying. They're buying your ability to technically and emotionally and um, in human terms communicate some sense of language in a convincing way to people. So, um, you know, whenever, whenever you do get a kind of um, a, a snobbishness, if you want to call it that, from actors about it, that that's the way I always turn it around to them and say, you know, it's the same skill set and it's it's not easy to do. So, uh, you know, it's worth taking seriously. It's interesting you should say that. I heard a, well, I'll paraphrase a quote I heard the other day, the difference between an actor and a voice actor. An actor is given a script and a, a backstory of a character. They learn the character, they learn the story, they learn the script. They get to meet their, cat, their uh, other characters in that, that piece. Uh, they either go on stage with that piece or they go on film with that piece. But they're now performing to an audience that wants to see them act and they want to see mm. this thing. The difference is with voiceover is you're given a script you've never seen before, you have no backstory... You don't understand the story, so you've got to quickly analyse the story. And then you, your finished work will be met by a hostile audience because no one wants to hear ads. Yeah. So you've got to make that <laughs> ad work. You know. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got to be that much more convincing. I think that's a, a really interesting analogy, actually, isn't it? Yeah. So your first studio was obviously with ISDN back in the 90s and you had your mates living yeah. in Soho in a flat, which I think is it's a sitcom. It's almost like Toast of London. Um, <laughs> it's a show about nothing. Yeah. No, <laughs> Toast of London, I'm sure, is a documentary. But anyway, we'll get into that one. <laughs> for anyone that hasn't seen it, check that out. Well, uh, but what was, the, yeah. what was the, uh, the instigator for you to set up what is now CKUK? A couple of things really was um, when we start, when we had young children. Um, I find they're not really understanding of studio discipline. I don't know, but, you know, they when you say could you be quiet and they go, oh yeah, and then um, and then they thunder about the place, you know, and um, this is <laughs> it, so so there was a kind of uh, inbuilt stress because it was quite a small house and what we did when we um, when I first installed the ISDN studio. I mean. At, at, you know, going back then, it never occurred to anyone that we would end up recording ourselves and, you know, computer recording and so on. It was just an ISDN codec and a small mixing desk and a mic. And, you know, I asked in the friendly studios, I went in what I should have. And that's how I worked it out. And, um, but it was in, it was what was, would have been the downstairs uh, WC in the house. Yeah. I mean, Fenella used to, my wife used to say, you know, you go in there and crap comes out of both ends. Really. <laughs> and that, but except, except it didn't function as that. It was, it was just a studio. So it was a small booth, but it meant that, um, you know, as time went on and, um, you know, sometimes clients would want to come in and... Uh, for now, we just have to take take the kids out and walk around until I'd finished and come back. And it was obviously that was creating a certain amount of um, uh, domestic strain. So we just happened to walk past this building, which is a, a couple of streets away. People who know 
London. It's, um, you know, lots of um, houses rammed together in uh, these uh, uh, residential areas. And um, a couple of streets away, there was this detached building which, I don't know, couldn't quite work out what it was, whether it was a business or a home, and um, and it became on the market. And this is a measure of how financial circumstances have changed and how banks' behaviour has, has changed, because I just went to our bank and said, oh, I want to buy this building. Um, <laughs> uh, and they went, oh, that's fine, yeah, we'll lend you two-thirds of the money, and then I had to raise the rest somehow. And um, But then, obviously, once we had a building, we had to think of something to put in it, which was more than just me. And... Um, Interesting, I found that um, in, in the very early days, I mean, this, you know, going back sort of 94 or 5 or something, people started to build websites. But at the time, it was very difficult to put audio on a website. There used to be something called a real audio player, and it's all a bit clunky. And um, I'd, round about that time, um, met and started working with a, a brilliant... Um, voice coach in the US called uh, Maurice Tobias, mm. who not only was very good at, for me, concentrating my mind on what I was doing, because when we first met, she said, well, you're very good at it, but you don't take it seriously. You think you're just waiting for the next acting job to come along, which was absolutely true. And uh, she helped me sort of think in terms of what I needed to do to uh, make it a, a viable business in its own right. And one of the things when I, you know, eventually said, well, let's work together on this, and I flew to LA and she put a demo together I mean, for me and started putting together a marketing idea. Um, and that's where the CKUK thing came from. We sat at Jerry's Daily in West Hollywood, I think, and um, she produced this bit of paper that said CKUK Designer Reads, and it was sort of based on the DKNY um, and Calvin Klein branding. And um, she said, you know, you have to bring forward your own personality and make that your, your business. And I then came home and thought, well... Uh, I'm sure I won't be able to get the, the, the domain ckuk.com. Surely someone will own that already. But they didn't, and so I, I got it. And, um, and I thought, yeah, I need to create a website. But everybody else at that time, insofar as there were voiceover websites, um, you know, they tended to be a picture of a guy with a microphone and, um, or a, a picture of a microphone and these rather sort of clunky audio demos and so on. And uh, so I, I thought, well, maybe a different way to do this is to try and sort of pull on the branding side of it a little bit. So I, um, I hunted around and put out to tender, really, the idea of this website to fashion designers um, and found a young guy, a uh, young Australian guy, actually, called Richard Denise, who was working in London at the time, who'd done a lot of fashion work. Um, and he kind of latched onto it and came up with really good ideas and, and produced this fashion sort of... It was a slightly sort of spoof thing, but it was sort of shots of me as, you know, kind of carrier bag with CKUK over my shoulder and quite, quite funny in a way. But, um, but also, he said, the way to put audio on this website is to use Flash, which at the time was a relatively new thing. And he created this Flash-based website that had integral audio in it. Um, which is a long answer to your question, because what happened when I launched that website, it did very well for me as a, um, in, in terms of my voiceover business, but I also found that people were getting in touch saying, uh, oh, I just saw your website. Could you, could you get me um, this done in French, German and Italian? And could, you, could, you, could we book so-and-so? And they, it, somehow the strength of the brand made them think it was some kind of agency, really, which it wasn't. Initially, I, I thought, well, that's not what I'm advertising. And then I thought, well, if they think I can do it, they seem to think, <laughs> I'm sure I can, you know, and I happen to know uh, a very good um, French uh, voiceover in London who had a small agency, still doing it, Daniel Pajon, Actors World Productions in London, and uh, he knew just about everybody who'd ever worked for the BBC World Service. And so we started doing that, and um, quite often if I was doing a, a big... Uh, campaign for Volvo or someone like that, they'd say, can you get this done in uh, in this other list of languages? And so we started facilitating that. So that was the other thing. We moved into the building. So that's what CKUK, Media Limited, CKUK Spoken Words became, was uh, one-third me, one-third the multilingual production service, and the other third was the studio itself, um, because we thought we needed to make it <clears throat> like a West End production facility. But at the time when I was, I was going into studios in Soho and digital audio was still quite a new thing and they were all film-based really. So what happened was when you were sitting there and somebody just wanted an audio file for their website or their 
their corporate programme or whatever, it took about three people running up and down a corridor to transfer it from whatever format they were recording it on into a digital format so this person could take it away with them. The studios just weren't set up like that. So what I thought was we could create a studio that had all of their production values but didn't have the bits that people didn't want. So I think we were one of the first kind of purely digital-based voiceover recording studios um, and that's what we, we concentrated on, just trying to make the best sound we could and making it easy for people to take away with them. And, uh, you know, we had a, an FTP site, at, which at the time was sort of a white-hot technology, you know, where we could transfer audio to people. Now we just all take all this stuff for granted and we'll, we transfer and um, send stuff about to, to, to each other. But at the time it was, um, you know, that people used couriers to take audio. It was put on onto objects, onto tapes or CDs or whatever, and it was taken between people in that way and it was quite unusual to say you don't need any of that we'll just transfer it to you um in the what we now call the cloud and uh, that was really the sort of starting point for the studio and um so it went on from there did you find uh, anyone becoming hostile about the fact that you being a voice talent had a setup like that yeah um not not hostile not to me anyway but um there was a certain understandable resistance because um studios would say you, they can't possibly know what they're doing um because they're, you know, they're artists. <laughs> but I mean, I was quite careful to um, involve technical uh, advice, and you know, in less so uh, now. But I would, you know, I did used to hire engineers in to do stuff. I didn't sort of pretend that I knew. And I, you know, it, I find generally, um, if I was working in a studio, I, you know, I wouldn't ever want to sort of steal people's ideas, and certainly not their clients. But I would stay behind. Uh, if the engineer was somebody who was uh, uh, friendly and willing to talk and just ask them questions and say, you know, when you're recording that and why did you, when we got to that point, why did you do that and what was that bit of processing used and I really love the sound here, what is it exactly you're using and just sort of built up knowledge like that. But um, I think there certainly would have been a degree of resistance. But curiously, the strange thing was as well that in some senses we did actually know more than some studios because of the ISDN thing. We all got up to speed very quickly um, on how to connect via ISDN and what, you know, what being framed meant and, um, you know, what being an independent mode meant and all these kinds of different things. And whereas some of the London studios, they had these bits of kit, but they did use them very rarely. So sometimes you'd be sitting in a session in a, a London studio doing an ISDN with someone in another country and they were completely at a loss as to what was happening and you had to find the right way of saying, actually... If you try this, I think you might find it works. And <laughs> it's not, you know, there's, yeah. a, there's a, a subtle politics involved there. But I mean, by and large, I wouldn't ever, you know, studio engineers are brilliant people who have fantastic amounts of knowledge. And I wouldn't ever claim to, uh, you know, be able to do their job. I would always hire in somebody who, um, who you know, who was, a, who was a specialist in it. But, um, it but, but what I felt I could bring to it was my understanding of being on the other side of the glass because... Um, you, sometimes you can work in brilliant studios where it's not particularly comfortable to work for work in as a as a talent. You know somehow the, the ergonomics of it or whatever aren't right. And I, I always felt as well that um, the way to produce something successfully was to make it an inclusive project so that everybody in the studio was was involved in it and that you didn't have a sense that the talent was just somebody who was kind of brought in to speak and then left out of it. I mean, I still find it amazing when I'm <clears throat> producing sometimes and, and, and when I'm a voice that um, if they don't want to involve the talent in it, you know, they'll record a take and then put it with the music and say, oh, no, it doesn't work. And I say, well, we need to let him or her know hit the music. You know, they're the, they're, the, they're the experts in this field, you know. And um, So I, my, my idea was always to sort of try and get people as relaxed and um, uh, convivial as possible in the working environment and then do the recording and then it happens much more quickly and uh, much more happily as well because quite often people are, you know, we, we sometimes had very well-known people in here um, who are incredibly nervous and you don't get the best performance out of them. And we're, this is a big, massive name drop, but um, <laughs> lovely Judy Dench came here quite a few times and um, the first time she came was she was very, very nervous about it and so we all had a, you know, something to eat and drink and chatted away. And by the time we started it, it was, you know, it went very well. But I, that, that was always my concept, really, was to have, a, have a, uh, a good vibe about the place and make sure everyone was friendly and there wasn't this kind of um, hierarchical divide between people. 
We've all been around this industry long enough to remember the first days of ISDN. I don't know about you guys, but when I remember talking about, you know, linking up and all that sort of stuff, it was so foreign to me. And I can't imagine having to be a voiceover artist in the UK sort of going, oh, shit, I've got to figure this out and I've got to figure it out quickly. It was in the 90s, right? Yeah, early 90s, yeah. Most of us wouldn't have had any digital recording technology of any kind. So all this terminology would have been new to all of the users for the most part, I would think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like people had digital reverbs, but every piece of digital equipment, including most of these ISDN boxes, had, uh, you know, just analog ins, ins and outs. Everything had its own converters. And so sample rates and, you know, besides your delays and your reverbs, it was probably the only other digital piece of gear in the studios at that time. Yeah. And also the fact that, you know, you're used to going in and walking into a studio and being handed a script or two and reading them. All of a sudden you're sitting there in a converted toilet um, trying to work out how to use your ISDN box and not sound like you're in a converted toilet. (laughs) Right. So you have the technical issues to deal with, trying to make that space you have available to you sound somewhat decent, like a studio. Two major issues to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. And there was no me to help you. Exactly. Well, and it, it opened up markets. It, it changed the whole dynamic, I mean, of post-production just from from my perspective. And as all these, you know, not just ISDN, but more and more as remote connections came down, now it's all remote. Like no one, no one even bothers to say, oh, I need to save money to, you know, hire a local talent because now, you know, the connections and everything are in people's home studios. People hiring talent are not even conditioned anymore to pay for a remote studio. And so- yeah. There's no motivation to hire locally. There was an interesting thing. Bo Weaver, who uh, I know George knows, uh, I spoke to him a few years ago now, and he was saying about how he got his home studio going because it was him and another couple of ex-radio guys who were working, I think, in Boulder or Denver? Denver, maybe. And it was when the first ad came on TV about FedEx. We guaranteed to get it there overnight. And he just looked at the, the ad and thought, we can turn this into a business. And they went off, they made some demos and took off to their first, which became Promax, uh, promoted that they could deliver voiceovers uh, the next morning. That was the beginning of the uh-huh. remote studio. Am, am I yeah, wrong in saying, Robert, you might correct me on this, am I wrong in saying that ISDN was originally created for data as opposed to audio? Is that right? So so ISDN is Integrated Services, Services. Digital Network, and it was, it was basically designed in the 70s as the phone system switched from analog, literally analog hard switching, very much like what we were talking about before with that studio patch base switcher thing. Um, and it went from analog switched to digitally switched so that they could, or not digitally switched, but digital data um, going through the phone network so they could, you know, pass calls more easily, more efficiently using the lines that they had. And so the first thing that came up was the, if you've heard of it, the G.711 codec. Um, so that was the your your 8-bit 8K phone call that is now what everyone thinks of when they think of phone quality. Phone quality used to be just because, you know, low bandwidth and long analog lines, but then it got digitized. So after they digitized the phone network, the next obvious thing is, well, what else can we do with it? And their whole idea was we're going to do video phones. We're going to do data transfers for all kinds of businesses. And this was the thought of how to do you know, digital communications prior to the internet, which was happening at the same time, but with the military. Um, and it wasn't released, I guess, until, you know, Al Gore gave it to everybody. So what happened on ISDN? Doctors looking at x-ray scans remotely, video conferencing, high quality audio, banking systems, all you know, whatever you can do passing you know, data, that's what ISDN was intended for. And it stuck around and worked for a long time, having the advantage of being a point-to-point dedicated connection that's more solid than the internet because the internet was designed to be faulty and and fault-tolerant and recover from its faults, whereas ISDN was basically designed not to have faults, um, more expensive to accomplish that. And um, the internet kind of took over to the point where we are now, where we're kind of move over ISDN, all the phone companies are saying, you know, we don't want to continue providing the service and find a way to do it over the internet. You know, we're going to have to change the name of this podcast from the the pro audio suite to the history of audio with conversations about the history of Neumann and Gefell and where ISDN came from. This <laughs> yes, wealth of knowledge that's sitting around this table at the moment. It's, it's almost like we need Stephen Fry. <laughs> do, you, do you know Stephen <laughs> Fry in America? I'm sure you do. 
Oh yeah. 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 But uh, yeah, it, it, it totally changed the market. You know, it was like at first it saved money. ISDN saves money. It saves, you know, flights and workflows and you have to do phone patches and then try to get your stuff FedEx. So things were faster, therefore cheaper. And then it became, when the internet came around, it became actually too expensive because there was, you know, less expensive ways to sort of, you know, accomplish the same workflow. I remember seeing $16,000, $25,000 ISDN bills rolling into the radio station there at one stage. Oh, yeah. It was yep. so expensive. Still is. Still is for the so. for the actual phone calls. Yeah, the, the minute-by-minute charges. And then, you know, I don't know what's happening in AT&T but, or in Australia, but AT&T in the United States is really charging an arm and a leg for their services, for their ISDN services, because they're basically trying to get everyone to get rid of their lines. So it still is. It's actually getting more expensive. Yeah, they're charging an arm and a leg because they want to get ahead. <laughs> <laughs> right. Good one, man. Well, it sort of it, it, it leads us it leads us kind of nicely to our next little piece, which was a question for Robert regarding a session. Actually, Andrew and I were on the other day, uh, and it's a bit of a tech question about Source Connect. Now, you might be able to answer for us. We were recording an interview, and the talent we were talking to was recording on his end on Source Connect. Now, uh, logged out, forgot to download his. Uh, recording before logging out, logged back in. Is there any way we can rescue that, Robert? Unfortunately not. Because Source Connect now is based on a a web browser in Chrome, web browsers have what's called the sandbox, which keeps a page from getting into your file system. It's a security thing. And so you have to actively download that. And if not, it's in the cache of that particular page. And once you leave that page, the browser clears that cache and it it is lost. Um, That is, you know, we're, we're looking at improving all the capabilities of Source Connect now to sort of round it out with more recording capability than only your input, for example. And I'm, I'm hoping that there's a solution or a, a better workflow for the sandbox nature of web browsers. Well, I reckon that's uh, pretty good for the first episode of the Pro Audio Suite. What do you reckon, chaps? I think it was very well done, boys. Uh, we'll be back next week. We're talking uh, monitors, studio monitors for your home studio. We're talking something that's gone from the charts, but maybe not from our hearts, virtual glass. And uh, also, I want to find out more about um, isolating your booth with uh, what sort of door you should use. Yeah. And I think plenty that, of other oh, stuff. Coming I up. think there's something about peeing here too, because it's, it just says sit or stand. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That'll be, right. be next week. <laughs> We're going to talk about sitting and standing. Yes. <laughs> All right. On that note, I think we should um, slam the door on another pro audio suite. Goodbye. Goodbye. Wipe the tear, baby, from your eye. Though it's hard to part, I know. Tickle to death to go, don't cry, don't sigh There's a silver lining in the sky Bonsoir, old thing, cheerio, chin chin, na poo, toodaloo, goodbye